Greetings, my name's Andrew Sumner. My grandfather, Pop Smythe, bought me my first comic book in Liverpool, England when I was three years old, and I spent the next 50 years hurtling around the pop culture kaleidoscope, first as a fan and then as a journalist, editor, publisher and presenter. Along the way, I met a bunch of interesting people who will be joining me here. Creators, performers, professionals and public servants. We live in divisive, fractured times, but art and popular culture connect people from all viewpoints and from all walks of life. I'm often struck by the passions people enjoy, that they can set aside their differences for and agree on, whatever those passions are, whether I share them or not. And that spark, that moment of instinctive, connective agreement, that's what I call a hard agree. But we did something that was pretty good, actually, which is they have opened the liver building up for the first time in its history to, to like the public. So you can oh. actually go inside it and go up one, go up one of the towers, which I yeah. wanted to do all my <laughs> life. So that was that was oh, a real really. treat. It was brilliant. Uh, and, you know, you, you got to go right inside the clock tower and then right to the base of where one of the live birds is, the one on the south overlooking the river. Get a I, got, I got lost, I got lost in Liverpool. We were, we were doing a gig and had to get to Liverpool Stadium. But they'd torn down virtually all the houses and buildings around there at the time. I mean, there, was, there wasn't there was barely a landmark standing. That's right. And, and I, got, you know, I, got, yeah. I got to the gig late. I mean, not not too late, but, you know... <laughs> I got I got there pretty late. I yeah. didn't get a sound check. It was just I, I don't know what it's like now. I think that was probably the last time I dared go 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 into you know, Liverpool proper. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that you're describing the Liverpool yeah. that I grew up in, and and my 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 dad used to used to work at the the head the northwest head office branch of the Midland Bank, which was on London Road, which when I was a kid was the tallest building I'd ever seen. You know, it's only yeah. about seven stories actually. It's a large black building, but the whole area around it, which in the I had been told by my dad, you're in the 50s and 60s, was like tailors and all this kind of stuff. All that, all those streets have been knocked down. So it was like literally in the middle of a track of traffic island, in the middle yeah. of this wasteland, yeah. in the middle of nowhere. And that that was the Liverpool of, of my youth for sure. It is it is very different now because when it got um, nominated the European City of Culture yeah, know. Know, about fifteen years ago or whatever, there was a ton of European money went into the city, which benefited at no end. You know, so there's been a lot of development. None of it coming, by the way, from the UK yeah, or from well. the UK government. <laughs> You know, all com- all coming from Europe, which is why Liverpool is one of the few, you know, kind of traditional British cities to overwhelmingly vote to stay into yeah. the European Union. Of course, that that turned out the way it turned out, but but yeah, it looks very different now, and it's been quite a lot of the updating that's gone on in the city. It kind of respects all the, all the brilliant old sort of Victorian and pre-Victorian architecture, so it's it's looking a lot better than it yeah. did when I was a kid. How it how it furs over the next twenty years yeah, now that well, we're out of out of Europe and and you know the Conservative government certainly got no love for Liverpool. Yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> maybe Liverpool should declare independence, <laughs> join Europe, and uh, that would be actually join. Yeah. All, all, all Liverpool I, has to do is join Ireland and bingo. You know that's it. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 mate, I, I absolutely love that idea. I, I absolutely love that idea. And, and, brilliant. I tell you what, I'll, I'll start this off before, before we get rolling. Welcome to Hard Agree. I'm Andrew Sumner. 
and uh, welcome to our substrand on Hard Degree, which is Michael Moorcock's multiverse, with the great man himself, Mr. Michael Moorcock. Well, as a great man, I'm not feeling too great. <laughs> it's, te- it's, it's partly <laughs> well, Texas well, heat, which is, you know, which is yeah. you know, the famous. And yeah. I think just just COVID lunacy. Also, I've got a new computer, which just... Just by some accident, all my current work was missing from it when you know, the guy transferred yeah. it all for me because I'm no good at all, any of that. And, uh, and he, you know, I mean, it wasn't his fault, but somehow it had just got moved. So I'm looking at it and where's all the work? And, and kind of the only thing that's sort of keeping me more or less cheerful at the moment is, is working. You know, I'm, I'm doing some sort of light work. I'm enjoying it as a collaboration with, with, with a friend of yeah. mine. And, you know, and so, and as a collaboration, of course, it also means the email has to work, which it wasn't. So, so I had no, no idea how dependent I was on, on work. I mean, you know, you, you, yours here, the, the old miners, you know, just who, who identified you know, with, with work and that's all they could do. And when they, when they were sort of laid off, there's nothing else they could do, you know, and they just went mad and all that sort of thing. And, and I, and I thought, well, you know, you know, it's a, it's a shame. I can see how that could happen. I never thought it would actually happen to me. <laughs> and it's uh, it's ridiculous, you know, how much you know, how much you identify with what you do, you know, if, if you can't do it, you know, even if you hate it when you are doing it. Sometimes. No, it it's so true. I I, I I've had that experience myself, and I, I know I know exactly how it feels. Now, we kicked off, actually, by talking about a music-related anecdote with Liverpool, and, and that's what I wanted to focus on, on in this edition. But before we get into that, I was I, when I was reading around about a bunch of other things, something a piece of information dropped before my eyes, which I have read before, and I realised it must have been 20 years since I read this, and I just wanted to ask you about it, because I don't know if this story is apocryphal or not, and it was about you getting involved with W.H. Smith, about John Norman's Gore novels getting getting placed on, on a top shelf because because of their content, and I wanted to ask you about that. It's true whether that's true, and you, and your take on those books. Yeah, my, my logic was, you know, I'm, you know, I'm very pro-feminist. It's I've, you know, I've raised yeah. a house full of women. I probably couldn't have been anything else, as it were, you know, or, or, or yeah. the opposite. But but anyway, so and anti-censorship. And and Smith's argument was that if they were going to stock stuff, which in my view degraded women, they put it on the sh- top shelf where kids couldn't get at it. That was their morality, their idea. Okay, so that was the compromise. It wasn't entirely. I mean, it's a difficult one, something like that, where because you're dealing with censorship, you're dealing with all kinds of liberties and stuff. You know, it's not it's not an easy question if you if you. If you don't, you know, if you think porn's bad for people. So, I mean, anyway, I won't go into that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but so I thought, you know, Norman's books, after the, the, the weird thing is that I was offered the job before he got it. Um, not not whipping women, but but writing Edgar Rice Burroughs type, you know, <laughs> Sword and Planet Adventures. Ian Ballantyne phoned me. And Ian Ballantyne, you never knew what Ian Ballantyne was saying. He, he was, he came from, as, you know, the subject from such an angle that you were sort of, after an hour, you were sort of left wondering 
What was all that about? Did, did I agree to something? Did he, did he agree to whatever it was? He was a nice guy. But, so he's rambling away on the phone. And it turns out that he wants, you know, I'd already done three Burroughs pastiches as a kind of, took, but I took Edgar Rice Burroughs' own ideas and applied them to his heroes, which meant that the heroes were forever moving away from fights because they, they, didn't, they didn't want to do any harm to people because they're all saying how they don't want to do harm to people. But by the end of the, any book, you know, there's about five million corpses piled up somewhere. So anyway, that's why I did those. And I didn't really, you know, I had no other reason to do any more. So I, so I turned it down. So he went to whatever the bloke's name is, who writes as John Norman. And the first, Townsman of Gore was the first one, I think. And it was, you know, it was, looked all right to me. I, I mean, I wasn't engrossed by it, but it was, you know, it was a fair Burroughs pastiche, nothing too bad about it. But gradually the books became obsessive. I mean, genuinely obsessive. The, the sort of things you see written out, you know, in, 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 until the pencils run out or the Burroughs run out in, in a to, on a toilet door, you know, some. So, you'd like to know what it was all about. You can't probably tell, but nonetheless, you know, it's 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 the product of a disturbed mind, <laughs> and and, uh, and that's what they got to be like to the point where Valentine's wouldn't publish them anymore. Don Walheim, on the other hand, has a certain penchant. I won't say any more than that because I don't know any more than that. <laughs> but he has yeah. been known to change the title of, I think, um, I think it was called The Temple, a John Wyndham story for a magazine that Dom edited to, I think it was called Whip Queen, Whip Queen Virgin of Venus, that sort of name. I mean, classic. <laughs> and, and there used to be a joke that if, you know, if Don was publishing the Bible, he'd do it in two books. You know, and I can't remember what they were, but they were both vaguely S&M sort of titles. Brian Aldiss's uh, The Inheritors came, became Bow Down to Null. Tom Dish's White Fang Goes Dingo became Mankind Under the Leash, etc., etc., etc. I was sort of lucky. I never, I never had one. But when I did a book which did have some S&M in it, Don thought it was literature. I mean, he didn't know why he was being offered. It was such a great book. And, I, and frankly, it wasn't one of my greatest <laughs> books. And, you know, you're really offering it to me? Are you sure? You know, I mean, I'd love to do it. I actually changed the book because it was, it was, I, 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 was I was involved with somebody who was into all that stuff. And I'm not one to judge, yeah. you know, <laughs> without having kind of, you know, at least some kind of experience. Yeah, yeah sampled yeah. it to a degree. Um, so yeah. and and it just isn't for me. I mean, I'm I can't. I mean, I, I've only I think punched one person, same person, three times in his life. But but that's, that's about it. <laughs> who, who was who was Charles that person? Pratt, I mean, I might as well. Um, Charles would yeah. probably remember. <laughs> he was a really obnoxious kid. I mean, he really was. I had to throw him out of his own house one time. He was so obnoxious. I mean, <laughs> it's one of those. Uh, anyway, so uh, apart from fisticuffs, where were we? Oh yes, um, oh yeah, and all that. Oh John yeah, Norman. I, I, I put so, so my, sampling S and M I wrote to the bloke at Smith. I can't remember his name, but I, I knew him vaguely, and uh, I said, "Look, you know, you, you're you're doing this. You're you know, you put new worlds through all this because they'd banned new worlds for no reason they could clearly identify." 
which meant that either they had filthy minds and didn't want to say anything, or they they were so innocent they thought everything was filthy, except of course they were doing all kinds of semi, you know, you know, porn magazines themselves. And I remember talking to a buyer at Smith's and I said, Well, you've got stuff on you know on the floor here in your office that is far you know, more pornographic than anything New Worlds has done. And he said, oh, yes, but that sells, I don't know, and he told me some vast figure. And I thought, oh, so that's really where we are. You can be moral, you know, if you, if you haven't got a circulation big enough to, to make a, a good profit, but you, anything else goes by the wayside. But anyway, so I was, I, you know, I'd already had a history with Smiths overall. I also sent a copy of the letter to The Guardian. The response from the guy was, yeah. It's a bit unfair sending a letter, you know, private letter to the Guardian when I hadn't had a chance to answer. <laughs> and that was his answer. You know, I mean, there was nothing. There was no. The fact is, the the, the Gore books, you know, weren't hugely popular. It just right. seemed to me wrong that young, you know, young boys, and they mostly are young boys, come into a, a shop selling science fiction, which is what they, you know, they want to read and are interested in, and instead get something which is essentially mind rotting. I mean, which is literally going to possibly change their, you know, how how they deal with the world and people in it. So, you yeah. know, the least they could do is put it out of reach of kids. That's all all I argued. Anyway, yeah. that was all it was. But but I, I I you know, I've always had this problem because compromise where censorship is concerned. I mean, the Americans are all saying how the British are, are, are censorship ridden. They seem to think that. They I mean, I've been in at conventions where they seem to think that. But self-censorship in America is just everywhere. It's prevalent. Oh yeah, I, I I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. And and the reality is that if you spend a lot of time in American society, like you have, like I have, there is a massive oh, amount of Britishness which doesn't exist. No, and here they're in always the UK. amazed. You know, you know, British people on the talk shows. <laughs> you know, you're saying that you're coming out with that, yeah. and these are just ordinary things yeah. that you you would normally expect to see on an English talk show or a French talk show. Yeah. You know, any anybody's talk show, but. But the Puritans, you know, you know my my idea for a game which was to save America from itself. It was uh, it was a game called Sink the Mayflower. <laughs> and you, yeah, <laughs> you had to get the Puritans. I mean, that that was all. You know, anybody else could come. <laughs> it's not really fair. I don't think they were all Puritans on the Mayflower either. <laughs> No, no, I'm sure they weren't, but just a bit, many people of influence did. So to wrap it up on Gore, I think the thing I, I, I completely agree with your your stance on those book, uh, books. I remember trying to read one of them when I was in high school, and just thinking it was some weird, you know, polemic for some kind of sexually fueled misogyny. It actually was really quite yeah. unpleasant to read. It wasn't a Sword and Planet novel in the way Absolutely. I expected it to be. And he published and, a how-to book, which Dor published, Don published. Which you right. to do yeah. all this stuff. That's and right. of course, you know, as usual, yeah. I was dragged into it, little bit I was dragged into by a woman. There are women who confirm all this. So, you know, that you you know, yeah. I, I always thought it was ridiculous to ask people to ask a woman, well, what do women want? <laughs> because because you know, God knows what they want. They're the same as everybody else. You know, they want different things. So so yeah. you know, there's always somebody gonna support something like that. But I but I 
I, you know, I don't think there's really much of an argument. I mean, I, oh God, it's, it's too complicated. I've had that argument too. You know, I was part of a committee, a serious, sort of, we, we used to meet in the House of Parliament. I mean, it was a, you know, a proper sort of thing on pornography on, and, you know, and how to deal with it. And yeah. it's, it's such an incredibly difficult subject because, I mean, I've, I've known quite a few women who, you know, say, oh, no, it doesn't bother me. I do it, you know, change my yeah. clothes, have a bath, you know, and, you know, don't think about it. I knew one woman who wouldn't recognize you in the street if she was in her porn mode. She just refused. Yeah, you know, you, got it. You, yeah, yeah. You'd know it too because she was, you know, she was all in, in yeah. <laughs> somewhat different makeup. So, yeah, and so it was a problem. And, and it is true that I did have a, a, a contretemps with, with Smith's. But as I say, in the end, history sort of did the trick and, and you know, the people who still want that stuff can go and get it in the specialist places and I'm sure they still have it. Absolutely. And, uh, but you don't yeah. see it much in the, in, in the general, you know, on the news shelves. No, you, you, you absolutely don't see it in the mainstream anymore. And I think that it's one of the side effects of the, the glorious variety of the internet, right? People who want to yeah. pursue that stuff, they can surround themselves Absolutely. with it 24 seven and not even have anybody. I remember I was sitting on a train coming back from, where was I? I, I know what it was. I was on an Amtrak train at night. I think I was going from San Diego to, uh, to Los Angeles and the sun had gone down and there was a fairly respectable middle-class, you know, businessman type, you know, couple of years older than I was then who was sat there who was sat there looking at his iPad yeah but because the sun had gone down outside oh, yeah. the mirror ne- yeah, the, the window yeah. next to him yeah. become a mirror yeah and what he was actually looking at was like hardcore S&M just reels and reels of it he'd adopted this kind of yeah. scholarly look as if he was looking at business reports but it was just endless amounts of S&M porn you know for two whole hours to, <laughs> and, and he had no idea re- that everyone else in the carriage could see that's how we used to read comics <laughs> at school basically trying to look you know, as well like we're studying you know and to, it's very hard to when Captain Marvel's up to something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so, absolutely. So true, Shazam. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, sorry. I know, I know, I know poor so, old Captain Marvel's now been changed to Shazam and so on. Do you know I've got an original CC Beck that Paul he sent it to me when I was doing the multiverse 25 years ago now, I suppose. And uh, yeah. he said, you know, I know it's not a character, it's Gandalf. I know it's not a character you're particularly fond of, yeah. but in fact, C.C. Beck's Gandalf looked exactly like the wizard in Captain Marvel. So, you know, it was quite... Exactly, like exactly, Shazam himself. Yeah, so, yeah. so there's no need, to, no need to, even to worry about it. What, what? But anyway, I'd, I'd, compl- I'd completely forgotten he'd sent it. I found it. Uh, Linda found it. She's been going through a lot of pictures, and, you know, we've got a lot of pictures, and we haven't got wall space you know, to, to put them all up. Wouldn't want to really, but anyway, and she she found it. And she said, "You know what this is," and I, and I, I have no memory of him sending it. And I'm just afraid that I never thanked him for it. It's quite possible I I I, I did, and because my memories and that sort of thing is pretty terrible. Usually, if I'm working on a book, it doesn't really matter what you tell me or show me or do. I'll say, "Yeah, that's great," and carry on with a book. 
Yeah, and your focus yeah. your focus yeah. remains on your work. It, it it is well. Hopefully, he's listening in, and he'll get to hear this because because I I know Paul a little bit, and have had several like really pleasant conversations yeah. with him over the years. And of course, you know he's an endless font of knowledge about comics history and whatnot, and is a great creator in his own right. But what a lovely gift! I, I mean, a CC Beck original. I think oh, that's going too. to particularly if you've grown up re- re- reading like yeah. Captain Marvel. Um, I mean, Captain you know, Marvel was amazing. I, mean, I, I, I got I got into um, fights at school because almost everybody was a Superman fan, and and you and yeah. Captain Marvel. They were harder to get hold of the American ones with the proper colours and everything. Yeah. You can get them in black and white from yeah. you know, from. Uh, um, Whoever they were, I mean, they were the same people who did Tars or distributed Tarzan adventures. But anyway, but you you couldn't get them in colour, so you had to hope that some some bloke from a base, you know, had left one somewhere and and it got into a shop. You could you could buy them in a in a in secondhand bookshops. Then the American comics very hard to come by. They they weren't you weren't even being able yeah. to get the Sunday newspapers. You know, the imports were so strict at that point, and reasonably, I mean, yeah. you know. America had, after all, bankrupted us, and we had to pay them back. So, you know, we 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 didn't get much of that stuff. So, Captain Marvel really was. I love Captain Marvel. I, I, Superman, he was far too serious. And and uh, I, I was I was just going to say, mate, I couldn't agree more because I love the whimsy of yeah. Captain Marvel. Uh, and 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 actually, you know, I mean, his best mates are talking yeah, tiger. Exactly. You know, it's just <laughs> just walking around the neighbourhood he lives and in. He's, and he's got know, an and uncle who all can't really do it, but dresses up in the costume <laughs> and pretends he can. Yeah, Uncle Dudley. I mean, yeah. just brilliant. And I mean, the whole emphasis on family as well was really quite healthy. And and, and also, if you like classic stuff. It, all you have to do is flip over to to uh, the adventures of Captain Marvel Junior with all that amazing oh, Matt Boy art. Oh, do you remember yeah. that? I mean, he, he was my so beautiful. Artist, I have to say, Captain Marvel Junior yeah. was who I looked for most as a kid. Just I suppose because of the drawing. Um, yeah, I I, I, lo- I loved him, and probably Mary Marvel was the she was sort of the blandest in in uh, the, uh, the, she was sort yeah. of a token. Token marble in my, my view. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah no, I, yeah. I, and uh, and I think the fact that I mean, basically is a, is a boy who turns into a man, but is still a boy. I mean, he's still he's still got you know he's still yeah. got the kind of Stan Laurel puzzled head scratch from time to time. The other thing about uh, the, the Captain Marvel and the Marvel family is they were very anti-capitalistic. I mean, this was at a time when a lot more New Yorkers were left-wing. And I'm sure that the, the chances are that the Binder brothers were left-wing. I mean, they were Jewish and in New York. I mean, they couldn't, couldn't have been anything else. I don't know where they were. But anyway, the Binder brothers who wrote Captain Marvel and, and Beck himself, uh, it's quite possible that they were quite strongly, you know, if you like, liberal in, the, in their attitudes. So you've got a lot of um, anti-sort of, anti-greed stuff in the comics, stuff like that. You know, there were there were subjects where the well, an evil of some kind. And and it was far more sort of focused in that way. I don't know. It was, you know, to me anyway, it was it was the best and it was the most consistently drawn comic too. I mean, I don't remember very many that, you know, that didn't at least look like Beck. I mean, I don't know how many Beck True. He was he was kind of unique talent. I think that's very. I, I hadn't thought about it before. But I'm racing through those stories in my mind. He's saying about the anti-capitalist underpinnings, 
And that's absolutely something that I now realise that I responded to very positively, you know, as a young man. And you think in terms of the villains, that, that, that you know, one step away from being these arch dictatorial figures, whether whether it's Black Adam or whether it's Ibac, you know, or it, they're, they're, all, they're all hewing towards absolutely, the extreme yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so interesting. That's the only old comics I've got a small collection of. You know, I don't really, I don't, I'm not an obsessive collector. I like to have examples of stuff rather than, you know, the whole run of stuff. It's just, just also I haven't got room. And so I've got about 20 or so of the Wiz comics or Captain Marvel comics of, of, of the period. And it's pretty consistent. I mean, it's not, uh, but I think to be fair, there was a liberal, a generally liberal view to the comics in general, let's say DC and Marvel in particular, yeah. but 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 all of the comics, because again, there was that whole kind of liberal sort of movement that came after World War. II. I mean, I mean, I'm really thinking of the of after World War Two, I suppose, and and uh, you know, they and people were idealistic and you know and you know and there was a very strong emphasis you know the returning soldier gi bill things that were kind of you know which meant meant were popular measures i mean fdr was still with us essentially at that point um so so i think that 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 even 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 the dc comics though not so evidently i mean dc has never been fond of politics anyway as i know yeah. very well when when i've asked them to draw stuff Oh, your house! I only got the back of Bill Clinton's head, I think, in the nineties. But but you know, they're just just those that general and 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 I found that too with the Eagle, the you know the the Halton comic, which which came out when I yeah. was I think ten or eleven. It started, and it was hugely idealistic. It, yes, one yeah, world, absolutely. You know, yeah. one one world, one, everybody yeah. equal. You know, the planet solving the problems of the planet together and all that. This is all by 1990, as well as uh, two-way two -way, uh, wrist radios and the like, and all the other good yeah. stuff that Arthur Clarke was putting into the to, to those first serials. So, uh, and, and there was a really strong sense of idealism there, and, and, and it wasn't kind of Christian propaganda, even though Marcus Morris was, was, a, was a reverend. Page had, you know, had the story of St. Paul on the back, uh, apparently forever. I mean, in case some other, probably some other, St. Peter, probably, I couldn't, you know, you can't tell the difference, really. At least I couldn't, having not been brought up with any religion. So yeah. it all looks a bit odd to me. So I never really read the back page, but the drawing was very good because throughout Eagle, I mean, there wasn't a single bad artist in the whole in the whole bunch. And I, it was it was a very well known artist. Can't remember his name now. Anyway, yeah. And, and, and Eagle gave me my idealism. It's everything, you know, anti-racism, one worldism, you know, all the various ideals that, you know, that, that sort of power the ordinary progressive movements of the world came out of comics i mean if i think about it basically on edgar rice burrows it certainly wouldn't have been quite the same at the time the law of the jungle but uh, <laughs> yeah i i think you've tapped into something that's that was absolutely my experience as well and and everything you've just talked about politically and philosophically they were big influences on, on me too and they were all there they're all there in comic books which i read from a very early age Comic sure. books we I, chose I to read true. as well, Andy. I mean, I mean, like, for instance, I didn't like Black Hawk at all. I didn't like the, you know, the war comics, English war comics. You know, I, I, I was, I had outs with Fleetway over doing. I wouldn't do World War Two comics because I wouldn't use the language that 
you know, that was required, you know, again, you know. Oh, the, the negative yeah. kind of slurs against uh, the Germans yes, yeah. and the Japanese, just, yeah. You know, I, I thought, <laughs> this can't go on. Of course, it is still going. I still think the History Channel is causing most of the Trump voters. I mean, it's um, uh, they're just watching the same old rubbish over and over again. The secret yeah. history of Hitler's knickers, you know, and and, uh, and just nonsense. yeah, right on. And, yeah. and you think, you know, this is yeah. going into people who you know who were not only not born at the time, they you know they were. Generations ago now, and they're still thinking <laughs> bloody Japs, you know, rotten Germans, or whatever. You know, it's probably going on, <laughs> on the other side too. Yeah, even more extreme. Yeah, yeah, so, for sure. Know, who, who knows? Yeah, but, but anyway, I, I, so I'm not a great, I'm not, I'm not a great um, believer in um, in the History Channel. I think it's probably a force for evil. When Superman <laughs> should, or yeah. somebody, Captain Marvel would do something about it. But just staying in the world of the the Marvel family for a second. Were you ever aware of the the influence of Captain Marvel Jr. on Elvis? No, no, Have you ever no, heard no. this before? So it's it it's really quite fast. It's really quite fascinating. So so apparently, stylistically, two of Elvis's biggest influences in terms of his look were um, Captain Marvel Jr. as yeah, illustrated yeah. by Mac Raboy, who we talked about, and Tony yeah. Curtis, which is where he got right, the, right. where we got the hairstyle from. Uh, and and in later life, you know, when you get to 1970s Las Vegas Elvis, all of his fantastical costumes, often designed by a guy mm. called Bill Bellier, yeah. I think that's how you pronounce it. He, they were based on the DNA of Captain Marvel Jr. So El, so Elvis is taking care of business pendant that he always wore. If you look at it, it's a lightning bolt with TCB on it. And all those vents and flares and everything—that that's yeah, well, where it I'm all comes surprised. from. Uh, he was a did huge, you ever a huge go to fan. Nudies in uh, Los Angeles, nudies. Uh, sad, oh man, well, man, that, I wish. That, that was my tailor. <laughs> in, in my heyday, yeah, well, really, it was marvelous. Yeah. Just the stuff they had on the racks, let alone the stuff they were making for you know people yeah. like Elvis and and, you know, and others. Yeah, I mean, I got some. I mean, I'm not saying they lasted. I mean, I mean, they're perfectly yeah. well made, but. They didn't last in terms of fashion. <laughs> but uh, I tell you, he was a, a big yeah, fan of their yeah. stuff. And, and was, also, um, on the little was... block in North Hollywood where, where Nudis was, it was one of the few decent Indian restaurants in Los Angeles at the time. So ah, you could actually, right. you know, you could actually go, if you, were, if you were in funds, go and get yourself a nice jacket and then get curry stains all down it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Mike Nesmith of the Monkeys. Um, once he set up, once he, you know, set up his when immediately after the Monkeys, he got into his kind of country rock era, and he set up the, the first national band around that period of time. You know, progenitors yeah. of country yeah. rock to a degree. It's great stuff, actually. It's a, but in one of on, on one of their album covers, one of the things he is wearing is that is a is a sort of purpose purpose designed and made a nudie suit which is just this completely phantasmagorical yeah, wild yeah. west outfit with like big chrome stars and, and, and you always knew you know, when he was there i mean he's as old as old as the hills then so he must be dead by now because his car did you ever see a picture of his car it was it's a western oh, no, it's, no. Got, it's got horns coming out of it and and um, <laughs> guns uh, for you know, for some of the controls. Yeah, you know, six guns for some of the controls. It's a, you know, it's a Cadillac. It's a convertible. It's, it's a, look it up sometime. I'm sure it's uh, you know easily found online. But it was a great car. And you always knew that Mr. Nudie was was it was uh, was at the shop. 
which wasn't very often by then, I don't think, because he, you know, but we lived just around the corner. And so it was, yeah. you know, it was our local. So it was very easy to, the, the, the local, the local booze shop decided because I was, I was British, I was an expert on beer, which I'm not, you know, I've got my favorites, but I've not given <laughs> them many beers. I do not know, but I was very fond of Old Peculiar, which they didn't, which they only had in little oh, yeah. bottles, which I hadn't seen before, but it wasn't bad. And so, you know, I told them not to keep it in the fridge, keep it in a cellar temperature, you know, and it would actually be a better yeah. porter. And so after I'd said that, they decided I was a beer. Every time, I, oh, I think you, I, I was in letters from Hollywood, I think I probably already uh, said this, I, I'm repeating myself. But anyway, after I'd told him that, I'd become this great beer expert. You know, what, what do you think of this? Should I show me lists, you know, from his, from his wholesalers? And I, I'm, I don't know that. You know, that looks like my beer. <laughs> anyway, that was. Uh, there's there's a, there's a lot to be said for being the the token well, Englishman yeah, in, uh, yeah, well, in Los uh, Angeles. There are so. plenty in. There weren't many in the part of that in North Hollywood. It's it's predominantly barrio, yeah. and so it was nearly all Mexican, except you know for the little block of shops where Nudis and the Indian restaurant were. Yeah, you know, a, a few people who who like us who 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 were. Renting cheaply in in uh, you know in in a, in a nice little house. Well, it was Linda's house. I mean, I'm I'm saying us, but actually, I moved in with her. There's no question of it. She, I never, don't think I ever paid yeah. a penny in rent. It was it was very handy for the for the shops, <laughs> and uh, and and a, and, a, and a nice place to live. I mean, uh, I, I find generally speaking that I don't know. It may not be true now, but we 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 lived in Mexican areas, and like Venice was was predominantly Mexican and black when we lived there. The only the only people who weren't were Japanese, and we rented a, a little, well, basically a garage they'd converted into a, into an apartment at the back. And they were all very nice. I mean, you know, I know, um, I think Linda's dog. She was throwing a ball, and I think a ball went over a fence. You know, and 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 you know, and the neighbours would say, and the, the black lady across the street would come across and and say, "Time to move your car," you know, because you had to move your car for street cleaning. And it was a, it was a wonderful. Of course, it's now all middle class. Yeah, it's like Notting Hill now. I mean, it's you know, not not oh, not, yeah. Worth, yeah. not worth yeah, all, the, all, the, all the identity. <laughs> yeah, and all the identity. Yeah, is, yeah. Is we couldn't even find our old place no, no, in the, in Venice. Which no. altered yeah. so much and poshed up so much. Yeah, the last time I was there, the only thing I could truly recognise from a couple of years ago was the, you know, the the, the canals all still, still seem to be the, the ones that are left yeah. seem to yeah. be massively yeah. preserved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're really well, quite beautiful. I, I mean, you, you you could actually not be in Los Angeles. Yeah. I, I I I visited somebody. I don't think I knew them well. It was probably a girlfriend of Harlan's that he was trying to get rid of which is why I was with him. I can't think of any other reason I'd have been there. But anyway, and she lived on one of those canals. It was a lovely little house. I mean, she had a little house on, on and it was, yeah. It, I, I just think of mosquitoes, though. I mean, that's probably kill a lot of mosquitoes, but they get me before I get them. The amount of fentanyl I'm on, yeah. the, the, <laughs> they, they die happy. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone approves. Now, you, you met <laughs> right on, exactly. You know, fentanyl distributor to the <laughs> insect kingdom. Poor old Linda, she's got far more bites than I am. I used to be covered in them. <laughs> Nowadays they go, wow, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's good shit, man. <laughs> hey, somebody mentioned in passing the, the mic, and I wanted to ask you about your relationship with him, was Harlan Ellison. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, so, so uh, uh, you know, what did you think of him? How did you guys got get on? Extremely well from the start, mostly by me insulting him. I think I don't know what what he wasn't used to was a cut. Was a, we tend to do this in, in in England? I think it's a sort of a delayed response where the first response appears to be approving, and then the next thing you say kind of undercuts it completely. You know, for you know, oh, wonderful <laughs> yeah. stuff. You know, for a moron, as it were. It was at a Milford, one of the Milford things, and he, he was all right. I didn't know a great deal about him. I, I mean, I, to be honest, I wasn't much focused on American science fiction. I, I, obviously, I knew, I knew the people, and I hadn't actually volunteered to go. They, somebody, I suspect Judy Merrill, paid for me to go to to the this is in you know in the states in, in Milford, Pennsylvania. So that's how I got. And I, I'm not a great fan of writers' conferences, so I, you know I didn't really want to be there. I like you know being the writer and talking to all the readers. I don't like having to talk to other people who've got readers. That's terrible. Um, sorry, um, I don't know why, but I just don't like writers' yeah, conferences. Of course, no, that makes complete sense. <laughs> so Harlan was there. And he'd been talked about before he came because he was the kind of person who gets talked about before they turn up. Turned up with Norman Spinrad, who was a, fr- a close friend of his. Uh, they both lived in, nearby in Los Angeles. And I got on well with Norman too. You know, we, we, we just, we, we got on okay. But Harlan was forever projecting because that's, Harlan can't, couldn't help but, but project some persona. I mean, when he was being serious, you could tell because he, his voice changed to Edward G. Robinson at his most serious in a film. And it was just, <laughs> that's what happened. I mean, you knew, oh, this has got to be serious. Edward G. Robinson's coming on. You know, I, I described him in, in an introduction, which he never really liked, but but I, I had to tell the truth, I was, you know, without, I didn't think I was hurting his feelings, as a performer, but essentially he, he was a natural performer rather than, a natural writer. You know, very few yeah. writers like to sit in shop windows with all the world to see while they compose. It was a, it's a performance. For, for him, almost all of it was a performance, including the many, many self-invented stories, the, the incredible c- complexity of lies that he, that he told about himself, that he believed, you know, and by the time he was telling them, yeah. to the point... Well, I, I think I, I told this story before about, about when we were at Blitz, the Blitz Club. I mean, you know, new romantics, you know, limp-wristed new yeah. romantics to a man, as it were. Um, <laughs> I mean, none of them were going to be rolling up their sleeves and asking what you... And uh, a nice bunch of blokes. And I knew that The Damned, for instance, were science fiction fans and liked his work. I knew half the people yeah. in that fucking place were Ellison fans. I set him up an interview with a bloke whose name I forget, but he was very popular at the time with um, NME, um, who's gonna, who's promised to give him a front page and a double page spread. I mean, how many people get that except David Bowie, as it were? I mean, yeah. Right, like, like, so Charles Shaw Murray, one of those Charlie, kind of guys. I, I know one of the, well, one of, but it was one of those kind of guys. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I've had my. Oh, Paul Morley, Paul Morley, that yeah, one of, yeah, yeah, yeah. would be another kind anyway, of, candidate. one of those and, things. And yeah. I said, well, you know, we'll meet at Blitz, because I, I, there's a friend of mine was was performing there that night, and I was going to go, you know, and watch him, as it were, and have a drink, and and I knew it would be a good environment for Harlan's 
very, very um, delicate ego. And, you know, then he'd have lots of people there, you know, glad to see him. So we got the, the band was a guy called Richard Strange. I don't know if you remember him as, as, as sort of slightly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I do. Yeah, um, sure. And so he, he was there with his band. Every one of whom, including Richard, was a, was a Harlan Ellison fan. I mean, a real Harlan. They'd read more than I had. So, you know, I stand in there chatting. They, they haven't gone on yet. You know, we're just standing around talking. And Richard's sax player says, when are you going to give us a novel then? What everybody asks Harlan, who likes Harlan's work? Harlan snarl, turns to me, snarls, let's get the hell out of here. Because, of course, he's never going to do a novel. Um, yeah. ever, ever, ever. And he, but he keeps telling people he is. And I'm stuck. I mean, you know, I've got a friend here. I'm supposed to be, be uh, you know, cheering on, as it were. And I've got a friend here who wants to get out. And I've got the bloke who's supposed to interview him waiting outside at you know, the little table they had there. Yeah. And uh, so, so I'm saying, oh, you know, this is not a good time to be leaving. So... I think I took him home. I know I didn't go back. Um, I, it was too embarrassing, you know. To keep, you know, I just—I mean, what could I have said to all these nice guys? I yeah. mean, the only person there I didn't like was Captain Sensible, and nobody likes Captain Sensible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were all nice guys. Dave Banyan. I mean, they were just incredibly nice guys. Dave Banyan's yeah. a really nice Absolutely. guy, actually, isn't he? I He's mean, yeah, I agree. You know, you, you couldn't get a nice bunch at all. Maybe I don't know what it was. Maybe he thought it was. But he anyway. So that was that. Some two weeks later, I'm in Sherman Oaks, and I go to see Harlan. He's got a bunch of people at his house. Oh, Mike, come in, come in. Great to see you. Yeah, come in, come in. Great. Yeah, yeah. I was just telling these guys how we fought our way out of this cellar full of punks. I said, what? <laughs> And he elaborated, and I started to do what I usually did, which was, that, that isn't what happened, <laughs> because, and I thought, fuck it, you know, if that's what happened, that's what happened. But It's, it's the, ma- the man who shot Liberty Valance time. conservative, man. underneath gang stuff. I seriously doubt that his knowledge of gangs was... was anything but other books about gangs or movies or whatever. He was, he, he would, in, in LA, he would only go to the same restaurants. He would, wouldn't, he wouldn't go out of a certain area. He wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't, he never came to see us in Venice. Not once. Wow. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and quite timid people would risk it sometimes. <laughs> I mean, nothing to risk, but that's how they think. Yeah, and, and so he was a sort of timid, nerdy, Kind, generous construct. Well, the, the kindness and generosity yeah. was not a construct. The nerdiness and the rest of it was him. Was the, you know, as I said, we're all nerds underneath. Some of us just, you know, just have better table manners of course. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and, <laughs> I don't wear the same T-shirt, you know, every time. <laughs> Every day, <laughs> I was right going to wear my. Ma- yeah. I've got a, I've got a t-shirt. chapter uh, Doctor Who T-shirt, but uh, it was getting a bit manky. So, I, uh, and also, it's just too hot. So I'm <laughs> yeah. wearing a loose. And I don't think I'm putting him down to say this because I've seen him do incredibly brave things. A friend of mine, well, 
a guy a guy I knew called called Bobby Lippman, who's a, who's a who's a um, film agent and nice guy. Wanted to do Elric, and I uh, in the end didn't want to do Elric with Bobby. But that's another story, and Bobby would probably agree. But Bobby says he used to, you know, he lived in New York, the same building as Helen lived when when they lived in New York. And he lived on the 11th floor, and he thought that Harlan probably lived on the 14th floor, you know, he was a bit up. He knew him, you know, he only knew him slightly. He said, one day, he looks out of his window on the 11th floor, and he sort of, sort of thinks he's just seen something, kind of a shadow or something, go past. So he goes up to his window, and, and he looks, and there's Harlan, 11 stories up, climbing up the side of the building because he's forgotten his keys. You never hear, heard him tell a story like that. He tells a story about wow. how he once blacked up like a commando and went and climbed some big roller coaster, which, I mean, is sort of meaningless to me. But, I mean, yeah, and I've been with him when there's been a bum on the street who's obviously collapsed in New York again. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, not, hard to, <laughs> not hard to step over it. <laughs> No. And, you know, the, the guy's clearly a bum, but he's, but he's out of it, and he's, he's had some sort of episode. He's not passed out. He's had some sort of episode. So we're, we're with, a, with a, a very nice editor at the time called Vicky Shockett, who lived nearby, and she went and phoned an ambulance. We didn't have cell phones in those days. And the ambulance turns up. Oh, and I wait with the guy until the and the guy And the guys in the ambulance say, ah, we're not taking him. You know, he's, he's just a bum, you know, we, we know, you know, he just, he's just wants to get a warm bed for the night, you know, and so, and Harlan, all three feet tall of him, reaches up into the cab, grabs the bloke by his lapels, drags him out of the cab, and snarls in his face, you will take this guy to hospital, or I will wrench first your left arm off, then... <laughs> So they took it. They probably dumped him around the corner later, but nonetheless. Yeah. And, and, you know, so I've seen him do and things and kindnesses to people, you know, kindnesses to people. He has no, no, you know, there's nothing in it for him, nothing except just, uh, you know, being, being sweet. And it's got him into serious trouble sometimes because he had no common sense at all. You know, his life had become such a, a fantasy, such a construct, yeah. but he, he really couldn't, he could hardly work anymore. And about the only times he did work seemed to be in shop windows. I mean, I stayed with him for, you know, for yeah. weeks and months, not entirely all the time with him, but, you know, in, but with him. I mean, yeah, a long time. I doubt if I ever saw him, yeah, once I saw him finish a very, very short intro to a boy and his dog, I think it was, because he'd already conned the the publisher out of all the money and hadn't done the story. The guy came out to the airport, Los Angeles airport, from New York with the check that Harlan demanded because John Harlan said he had the story ready for him and he could go home with the story. Harlan sent his assistant out, got the check, no story. I don't think it was Jim Bain. I never had much sympathy for Jim Bain. So, so, so I, I, didn't, I didn't particularly mind, but that's, Classically, what Harlan could do at his heyday as a, you know, he was a spieler, you know. I mean, it, it was just just who yeah. he was. And it was almost wasted on, 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 he couldn't, he had no idea of plotting. He couldn't plot to save his life. His film scripts were just a mess. I mean, nobody could, 
I, you know, I don't know. Maybe there were some because I know some were filmed or TV stuff anyway. Oh, and he did that prize one too, didn't he? It was filmed. Yeah, of oh, the prize. Now, now that's interesting because the prize is, is mentioned in an anecdote about Harlan that I, I was wondering if if you were of it. Have you ever have you ever read that great Esquire piece by Gay Talese? It's called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. I've read the extract that deals with Harlan. Yeah, yeah, and that actually happened. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that, that that that's that sort of that's because in a way you d- you're dealing with another person who's a Absolutely. complete construct, Frank Sinatra. Yeah, well, I mean tremendous yeah, talent, exactly. you know, He's very saying, prolific, I'm, yeah, I'm unbelievable. About but, three feet tall too. I mean, you know, it's like no Muppet Five. I think the other the other ones, the Munchkins, the Munchkins, Munchkins. Anyway, yeah, he he he'd let almost anybody stay at his house, you know, and and he 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 and and. He would go away and let people stay in his house, and he had a, and apparently still has there at the house an incredible collection of comic books. You know, going back to number one Superman, all yeah. that sort of thing. What I didn't know about him, and only found out a day or so ago, Linda saw it, is that he. I was wondering how on earth he was making any money because he 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 ran out of credibility with publishers because he. I mean, yes. he sold Dangerous Visions several times without paying the authors who were in Dangerous Visions. So I was, that, that I was very, yeah. very critical of. I mean, I, I wouldn't speak to Harlan for two or three years because I just got sick of his behaviour. I got sick. Yeah, but, I, you know, I, 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 oh, he had a heart attack. So I had to phone him and I said, you know, yeah. if, if you're going to have a fucking heart attack every time you want my attention, I said, anyway, he wasn't writing much. He was recycling Collections of short stories. You know, he must have. He says, you know, his whole thing's Harlan Harrison has written ten thousand books, but they were, of course, ten thousand books that were all the same, just in different order of stories. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, but he 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 started reading, doing audio books, and I didn't know that at all. And, you know, I don't really read locusts, and maybe they've said it in there somewhere, but I think maybe that's where Linda read it. I'm a life subscriber to locusts and, and the New Statesman, yeah. and I'm uh, trying to think of how I can stay alive, you know, long enough to uh, to get the best out of my subscription. <laughs> out of your subscription. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you, you have, you've actually, Mike, you've given me the key to something here, to to understanding the Harlan Allison, whose work when I've dipped into it, I very much enjoyed, but there were so many unfinished projects wrapped around him. I remember this must have been when I was at the end of my era of high school first, yeah, at the end of high school, so early 80s, I remember seeing an advert for a shadow graphic novel that was going to be called Dragon Shadows, and it was because a, a, a lot of shadow stories take place yeah. in Chinatown. It was one of those, and uh, and it was going to be written by Harlan, and it's going to be illustrated by Michael Kaluta. And I thought, wow, yeah. that's amazing! I can't wait to no. just never turned up. It's one of those one of the, one of those books that was solicited. Great image by Kaluta. Never yeah. heard another well, thing he, about he it. He was he he did a lot of stuff. I mean, he didn't turn in um, Linda when she was working for him. There were two very nice producers. I mean, they were producers who'd been involved in, in the whole McCarthy thing and everything, and sort of they, you know, they they kind of stuck in there. I think they were the actual producers of Spartacus, who did most of the stuff that Kirk Douglas later claimed to do, which was rather unpleasant. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love Kirk Douglas as a, as a film actor, but uh, he he wasn't the uh, hero of the you know of the, of the left that, that he. 
Yeah, right. Uh, the great employer of Dalton Trumbo. It was it was these these guys who'd done all of that. Dalton Trumbo included. So yeah, and they said to Linda, "We know he's going to lie to us on the phone. You know, he's we know him. He's going to lie to us on the phone. Could you just please?" Every so often, just confirm. I think this is what they said. I mean, she would confirm, but it's something like this. Just confirm yes or no whether something we say is, is, is accurate. <laughs> Has he done any work on the script today? <laughs> As it were. I don't know whether she ever had that one, but you know, that was the sort of question. And I think it was for the first script of I, uh, Robot, which, which yeah. anyway was. For some reason, producers all say the same thing, and directors sometimes also say, "Is it? Don't worry about the cost. Don't worry about what's going to happen. Just write the script the way you want it written." And you know, think, well, why the hell should I? Because I know you're going to start, you know, cutting it here, cutting the old kind of for that. You know, we can't do that. I mean, there is no movie. I mean, there are probably there is a, an ultimate movie you could make, but but sooner or later, you know, something's going to happen to it. Anyway, and of course, producers love to validate yeah. their own existence. But these were by, particularly by these messing are two with the work particularly, of you know, idealistic producers. I mean, with an incredibly good track record, and yeah, everything. I mean, they had everything, and Linda loves them to this day. I, I think they did. There's a classic film they did that's very well known. I mean, really a great film. Can't remember. Anyway, she would know, but she's not here. And I don't think he ever finished the script. He, you know, actually turned in a finished script. And after a while, you can, you know, you can, if you've got a gift of the gab like Harlan, you can, you know, talk your way out of it for a while. But sooner or later, you've got to deliver, you know, because what Harlan didn't seem to realize is publishers talk amongst themselves. They actually have friends in other publishing companies. Perhaps they both worked at the same one at one point or whatever, but they say, hey, you know, I just uh, paid Harlan, you know, daddle, daddle dollars for a story. You know, we should be getting it by next week. And the person will say, oddly enough, we just paid Harlan. <laughs> we, we didn't ever get it. So he ruined, ruined his own credit. And it was yeah. considerable. I mean, it was... And, and I mean, people would recognize you in restaurants. If they didn't, of course, you'd make sure that they did. Unfortunately, <laughs> oh, God, the battery's going. Un- unfortunately, hey, can you see me? Hear me? I, I, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, unfortunately, he dragged oh, me yeah, in on it. Like in a, we'd be in Barnes and nobody say, hey, Mike, Mike Moorcock, your books are over here. And, of course, I'd be shrinking into the ground. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I, you know, he thought he, you know, he was doing me a favour in his own, uh, in his own lights. What are we going to do about this? Well, well, <laughs> mate, well, I, I, th- I think, I think that I think the universe is All sending right. us a message that it's a good time to wrap up because we're almost yeah, exactly we an hour in, and it's it's been fascinating hearing your kind of last word on on your friend Harlan well, Nelson. I, I don't, and, um, I don't want people to think I. I, I disliked him or despised him because I didn't, you know, I really, I really, yeah. both of us cared for him incredibly. I mean, we were fucking spoon feeding him ice cream when he would sulk in bed and, and talking like parents, yeah. you know, <laughs> so, you go and feed him. No, it's your turn to go and feed him. No, I'm not feeding him. He's old enough to feed himself. <laughs> so anyway. 
Uh, well, well, Mike, that was that was yeah. a glorious journey from John Norman and Tarnsman of Gore through Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Junior onto Harlan Ellison, and we didn't talk about music once, very briefly, right. with Elvis Presley. So, uh, so we've still got all of that. I think to look I mentioned to, Auckland mate. once too at some point. Oh, yeah. oh, and t- oh that was before yeah. we started. That was in Liverpool, Liverpool Stadium. Yes, the I've Liverpool Auckland anecdote. Yeah, that'll, got that'll be in there too. About, uh, well, it's great, if, depending how you see it, um, about Liverpool Stadium. So remember that for next time. Um, right, that 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 is where we right will start there. next yep. time, mate. Okay. Cheers, great, yeah. great to see you, pal. You, you take care. Yeah. I'll see Good you very soon. Bye-bye. Cheers, mate. Same to you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Hard Agree. This episode was edited by John Horsley and Kenrick Regan, and our theme music, Golden, was written and performed for this show by Liverpool's finest band, Denio. Hard Agree is a production of the Spoilerverse and myself, Andrew Sumner. <laughs>